My name is Alex Culpepper. I am the next-gen pastor here at Village. If you could do me a favor, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 1, if you have them with you. Uh, We're going to be in verse 67. Uh, And while you're opening up there, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about actions. Uh, So uh, we know the phrase, actions speak louder than... Very good. Okay, so actions speak louder than words. Actions actually have the power to send messages. That's the amazing thing. So, uh, so let's talk about some simple examples of actions. So uh, imagine I walk into McDonald's and uh, I go and I stand and the counter's like right out there, but I stand right here. So I like kind of stand back from the counter at McDonald's. I'm sending a message to the person behind the cash register. And, and, and if that person behind the cash register asks me as I stand back from the counter, stand far away from the counter, can I take your order? I'm going to be very frustrated with that person, right? Because I'm sending them a message, and that message is, I'm not ready to have my order taken. I'm still deciding on what I want to eat. And so, uh, so my actions actually have the power to send messages to the person behind the counter. And then I step up to the counter, and that's finally when they say, sir, what would you like to order? So I convey that message to them by the actions that I produce, right? Uh, so uh, something fun for this season. We're all uh, taking pictures of our families and putting them on nice Christmas cards, right? And then we send those Christmas cards to a bunch of people. And uh, when we send those Christmas cards to those people, what we're doing is we're actually letting those people know we're sending them a message that, uh, hey, we value the relationship that our family has with you so much that we want to send you this nice Christmas card, right? That's a, that's a message that we're able to send with our actions. Uh, how, about, how about handwriting a note as opposed to like sending it in an email or, or typing it out, right? A handwritten note actually has weight and meaning that a typed note doesn't have, right? And there's, it's because it, it communicates that in this busy world, The person that I'm writing to is worth the time to actually sit down and write out the note, right? So that action, it actually has the power to convey a message. So so we actually have this in Christianity too. We have actions that have the power to convey a message. So we do this with baptism. Um, So baptism is a public identification identification and declaration that, that I am, I'm going down into the water, under the water, I'm dying to myself, and I rise up out of the water, I'm coming alive to Christ, right? That's a public declaration to everybody around that I'm now identifying myself with Christ. And then, and then we take communion, and then when we take communion, the other thing that we do, like it says right in the passage that we read every time we take communion, it says, uh, you declare the Lord's death until he comes, Right? So that action is actually, it has the power to proclaim something. And this is something that's even true of the Jewish religion. So um, uh, Jewish religion has a lot of ritualistic action that points to promises that God makes. So when the Jews, when, uh, when the Sabbath is practiced, um, that the Sabbath was actually a symbol for the Jews. It was something wired in to every single week that reminded them of the promise of rest that God had given them, that God had a land for them where they would be at rest. That was the promise that God had given them. And so every week they have a Sabbath where they rest to remind them of the promise of rest that God had given them. This is also true in the Passover Seder. So the Passover Seder, uh, every year at Passover, uh, there's certain foods 
that are eaten. And so some of those foods are really bitter. Uh, They don't taste good. You wouldn't typically eat them in a meal, but they eat them at the Passover Seder to remind them of the bitterness of slavery that was in Egypt, right? These are these actions of eating these foods. They they have the power to proclaim a message, right? They drink certain cups to remind them that, that God kept his promise that he would deliver them from slavery in Egypt. So that's another action that has the power to proclaim something. Now there's one specifically that I wanna focus on because it's important and really relevant to what we're gonna be going through this morning. There's the Jewish practice of leaving an empty seat at the table for Elijah. So at the Passover Seder, what what happens is that everybody sits down, but they make sure to leave one empty seat because it's anticipation of the fact that Elijah is going to come. See, this was really, really important for the Jewish person, and I want to tell you why. So Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says this. It says, Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So when, uh, when it says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord, it's actually talking about the day of the Lord is the day that the Messiah is going to come back. It's the day that God is finally going to, uh, going to rescue his people, going to show his people how faithful that he is to them. And that, that involves the coming of the Messiah, right? And so when it says, I'm going to send you Elijah before that day comes, what, it, what it's talking about is actually there's a prophet who is going to be like a precursor to the Messiah. There's this prophet who's a precursor to the Messiah. And so, so when the Jewish people, when they leave an open seat at their table for Elijah, that's an action that is a declaration of something. That action is a declaration that we are waiting for something. We're waiting for Elijah to show up. We're waiting for him to tell us that the Messiah is on his way. They proclaim this every single year. And you can actually trace this practice all the way back to to before Jesus' time. To to the the, the few hundred years before Jesus' time, you have people who, uh, they, they didn't leave an empty chair, but what they did is they left the doorway of their house open. They left the doorway of their house open to, as, a, as, a, as an action that proclaims, we're waiting for Elijah to show up. This is something that they did year after year to remind them that we are in a waiting period. Actually, what's interesting is this Malachi 4, 5, and 6. These are the last words of the Old Testament. The very last words. After this, God doesn't speak. It's the last thing he says. So the the implication is, you know, we're still waiting. We're still leaving this spot open. We're waiting for the Messiah and we're lost until he shows up. So I want to give you a little bit of background on Israel. I want us to think about this period of waiting that they went through. So can you imagine practicing these things, these things that remind you of God's miraculous works, hearing about all the amazing things that God did, how God's presence was in the temple and how it filled up the temple. People were falling to their knees before God. God was doing amazing things. Imagine hearing that your whole life. And then for the last 400 years, God's not done anything. God has been completely silent. Meanwhile, the world 
around you has been changing massively. If you're an Israelite, the world has been uh, turned over on its head, uh, and it actually has meant really bad things for you as a person in the nation of Israel. So uh, one thing that happens, Alexander the Great comes, and he, he conquers Israel. He conquers the rest of the region around Israel. He shows himself to be this amazing king, right? And then Antiochus Epiphanes comes after him, and he actually persecutes the Jewish people and goes in and defiles the temple, the sacred place that that the Jews consider the center of their religion. He goes in and defiles. So he comes along. And then the Maccabean revolution happens. The Jews actually rise up against their Greek oppressors, but then the Romans come in and take over, and uh, and they, they show up. And then they kind of like give a little bit of leeway to the Israelites. They say, well, you can have your own space. You can build your temple. And so, so they built a temple. But the problem is, is that temple is nothing like the temple that was in the Old Testament, the temple that they heard stories of, of how God's presence filled the temple, how it was there, and, and all of these systems that were in place. It's nothing like what you hear about in the Old Testament. It was, it was barely a shadow of what the previous temple used to be. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come in and they start reinterpreting the law. They start, uh, they start doing things because it's been 400 years of silence. They have to, they have to figure out why God hasn't spoken. The priest, so the high priest position, well, he's not, he's not even a Levite. It was really important for the priests to be Levites. In fact, those were the only ones who were allowed to be priests. But the priest in this time wasn't even a Levite. The priest was like, a political position. To be the high priest was a, a, a position of political power. In fact, you could pay somebody off to make sure that you could become high priest so you could have control over the Jewish religion. This is all of the problems that Israel was experiencing. Can you imagine hearing all of these things about who God is and not hearing and speak? And then, in fact, seeing things go such a negative direction for you and your people. You're still doing Passover. You're still doing the sacrifices. You're still doing all the things that you know God has called you to do. But there's no response. The Jewish religion at this point was a dark, empty, lonely shell of a system. And many people were distraught and hopeless in the midst of it. You see, they had these these proclamatory actions, right? These actions where they say, yes, we're waiting on the Messiah, but they weren't seeing it. They weren't seeing this hope come to bear on reality. So I have three questions this morning, three questions that we're going to go through as we look at this passage. And um, the the first question, these these questions are going to guide us. The first question that, that I have is this, do you hear the silence breaking? Do you hear the silence breaking? Verse 67 and his father, Zechariah. So we have to talk about Zechariah for a second. There's some background on Zechariah that we have to understand. So basically what's happened in the story, if you read ahead a little bit, you can see that, um, or sorry, read back a little bit, you can see that, that John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, had just been born. Um, and, and so what happened even further back before that is that, that Zechariah had been mute, had been not able to speak or hear for nine months. Um, and so that word mute, uh, when, when we look at it in scripture, it, it implies that not just that his mouth was closed, but that he couldn't hear anything. So Zechariah has literally, like silence, has described his situation up to this point for the last nine months. And so the question is, how did he get here? Well, the angel Gabriel appeared to him, Luke 1, verse 16, and he told him some things about a son 
that he was going to have. So this is what the angel Gabriel said. He said, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So so Gabriel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son and this son is going to be born in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, here's the amazing thing, Zechariah. Uh, Elizabeth, your wife, is going to bear that son. Elizabeth was too old to have kids. Like, she was past childbearing age, right? She could not, she, she could not have kids. And so, Zechariah, when Gabriel told him this, he was like, dude, you're insane. That's ridiculous. Why would you say that? And so, so Gabriel, to prove his point said, oh, okay, well, I, you will not be able to speak or hear for the next nine months, and we'll see if you believe God at this point. So, so the whole time, he's just, he, he's like bottled up. He can't say anything. Can you imagine, like, what would you store up if you could not speak or hear for nine months because of this? Like, what sort of thoughts would well up inside of you? Back to verse 67. He received this prophecy. The last thing he heard before, before he was mute and before his ears were closed, before all of this happened, the last thing that he heard was that his son was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is a huge statement if Elijah is the one who's going to be the precursor to the Messiah. This is the last thing that he hears. And so, verse 67 says, he prophesied. He prophesied. So, so the author, Luke, is writing right here in verse 67 that Zechariah prophesied. That is a huge statement. God has not spoken for over 400 years. This is an amazing thing that God is doing. God has actually sent somebody to proclaim prophecy, to announce prophecy to his people. This is amazing. So I want to talk about Zechariah because for him... In this nine-month waiting period, in this season where things are welling up, I would say that Zacharias, his silence started to break the moment that the angel closed his lips, the moment that the angel closed his ears. He started, at that moment, he started to understand what God was doing. He, He realized that God is finally speaking again. He saw this angel appear to him, then an angel appears to Mary, then Elizabeth's pregnancy actually happens. That's the crazy thing. All of this stuff happens, and and he's just watching it all happen. He can't speak, he can't hear, but he's just observing. So then he opens his mouth. The Holy Spirit fills him, which means that these aren't just Zechariah's words, but these are God's words. He opens his mouth and speaks, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The first words out of his mouth are, are words of praise, words of joy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The word visited is incredibly ironic because God has been gone for 400 years. So the fact that God has finally showed up, this is significant. God removed his presence from the temple. He's not even in the temple system, but he has finally showed up. And it says that he has redeemed. Zechariah refers to the redemption aspect of prophecy. And this, this Jewish view, this word for Jews, this actually was a reference. Uh, it, it, it helps them, takes them all the way back to Egypt. 
how God redeemed them out of slavery. And then every time after that where God rescues them out of a situation, um, it's, it's referring to this, this way that God saves his people. So when Zechariah sees that his son has been born, he starts talking about these things as if they've already happened. He talks about how God has finally shown up, how God has redeemed his people, as if it's already happened and as if it's going to have ongoing um, realities. So it's like, it's actually like he, he sees this event of John's birth as, as the first domino in a chain of dominoes to come after it that ultimately end up in the arrival of the Messiah. So uh, i talk to you about music composition. There's this idea in music composition of tension and release. Tension and release. And, and the best music is uh, it, it creates good anticipation. And anticipation is created with tension. It gets the audience to a point where they're, where they're anxious to hear a resolution in the song. And so when this series of events took place for Zechariah, it, it was like a soft resolution note playing in the midst of all the tension. It was like forecasting the resolution that was about to come in the music as his silence is starting to break and he sees it happen. And as soon as he hears that note, it's like he already knows how the song's going to end. This one event, the birth of his son, it's caused Zachariah to see God's resolution that he has in store. And this first event and a chain of events is finally going to bring out around the fulfillment of of prophecy. So when Zechariah opens his mouth to speak, he's already acknowledging that the light has finally come. Second question. Do you know what God has done? Do you know what God has done? Verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That word horn of salvation is actually a poetic reference to a king. To a king who is going to come. So he's raised up a king who is going to bring salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is very clearly a reference to prophecy because the prophecy was through David's line would come the Messiah, would come the king who is going to save Israel. And so the event, John's arrival, was, was going to ultimately result in salvation through the Messiah. And because this one thing happened... It's like the other thing has already happened, even though Zechariah is still in the midst of this tension. And then he talks about the holy prophets. So, so his point is the fulfillment of prophecy. But the problem is, uh, God hasn't spoken for 400 years. All of these horrible things have been happening to Israel. For many people in Israel, it, it'd be as if the, the, the holy prophets were in danger of becoming irrelevant. Because all of the promises that they made, all of the things that they said, they weren't coming to pass for Israel. And so when he talks about the holy prophets, he's saying, listen, God is finally keeping his promises. And I'm fortunate enough to be sitting in the midst of this time. So like, I don't even think we understand the amount of time that God has been silent. Because like, America has only been a nation for 200 years. And that's like basically forever for us, right? Like we, like we imagine 400 years of silence, but not even that. Like God made promises to Abraham 2,000 years ago that Israel is still waiting to see fulfilled. So there was this concern that the holy prophets, they're in danger of becoming irrelevant. But God, now God, God is keeping his promise. Verse 71. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So there's a tension to note here. And I think, I think Luke, the writer of this, he wants us to see the tension. Zechariah, he doesn't see the full picture of what Jesus came for. His focus, his focus is entirely on the salvation that the Messiah was going to bring for one nation, for Israel. He was, he was entirely focused on that. And so, so he's been waiting for so long, and he sees this tangible salvation that's coming. This is measurable. This is visible for him. It's as if it already happened. But Zechariah is like Mary, right? Because we talked about her and how she only sees the, the small picture of what the Messiah was going to do. But, but the magnitude is so much greater than just the salvation of one nation. So this is enormously short-sighted for Zechariah. Verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So God has come, he has visited Israel, he has, he has redeemed his people and now he's showing us the mercy that he promised in his holy covenant. All of these things, he's saying God is accomplishing it. And so uh, Abraham was given a covenant by God. We've, we actually covered this in the weeks uh, before, before we started the blessing series, we actually were talking about Abraham. We spent a lot of time uh, talking about the promises that God had given and the story that he went through. And so Abraham was given a covenant by God. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, this is the promise that God gave to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So the nation, so, so God was going to bless Abraham so that he could ultimately, ultimately be a blessing to the world. It says, I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Zechariah, he only saw this covenant by the first words that God began sharing with Abraham. He saw the great nation part. That's what he had his eyes fixed on. So he doesn't understand the reality of salvation from our sins, a blessing to be received by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He doesn't see God demonstrating his unconditional devotion to Abraham. How even if Abraham fails in this covenant, God will still come through because the covenant relies on God and not on Abraham. He does it, he's missing all of these pieces, right? He's only seeing a nation that needs to be freed from its enemies. The piece that he's missing is that, is that God blesses Israel for a purpose. He blesses Israel to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So this, I, this might over-trivialize it a little bit, but I think it's okay. Uh, so uh, I, imagine a kid who gets a gift for Christmas. I mean, I met like one or two-year-old toddler. Let's go with that. Uh, so, so you set this gift in front of them. And you say, okay, Billy, unwrap your present. And so they unwrap it, and they, they open up the box, and, and they pull the toy out, and they take the toy and they set it over here. And then they go back to the box and they play with the wrapping paper. They play with the box. They try to get inside the box, right? Like, that, no, the point of the gift was the toy. Like, you missed the point of the gift. Why are you playing with the box? Like, that's like, a, it's not really a frustrating experience, maybe. But you, you're like, you're missing the point, right? It's, the, the, the package is not the point of, of the gift. And so, so what is actually happening 
is that finally, God's fulfilling his covenant that he promised 200 years or 2,000 years ago to Israel, that Israel's not just going to be a great nation, not just going to be blessed by God, but that they would be a blessing to the world. A blessing that would ultimately come through the promised king hanging on a cross for the sins of any person who would place their trust in him. That's the promise, the salvation, the darkness that people are being pulled out of. And so this is not about freedom from some kind of domain of an earthly ruler, but this is actually about freedom from darkness available to all nations, all people. He goes on, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Israel, he, sees, he says Israel is going to be delivered forever, finally, never to be enslaved again. And this is huge for them because of their history, right? They have an identity in being enslaved and captive. That, that there's this cycle that they go through. Uh, they, keep, they keep returning to their old ways, but then the Lord rescues them, and then they serve him and honor him, and they, but then they're delivered over to the hand of their enemies again. And so they have this identity in being captive, this cycle, this pattern that they're going through. But Zechariah is saying it's going to break. The pattern is going to break, and finally God will establish his kingdom forever. They'll never be persecuted for their religion ever again. This is massive for them. You see, but we, we actually understand the full magnitude of what God is doing because that's still the small view, right? But God, he, he, he delivers us not just from the hand of a king that we don't like, but he delivers us from the domain of an enemy who's actually trying to seek, kill, and destroy us, Right? That's the promise that he gives us. So Jesus just, be, just being the savior of one nation, just being the savior of Israel, it's such a small view of this story. So here's, here's something interesting. Zechariah, as we, as we read this proclamation that he's making, it looks like he held such compelling emotions in his heart. Like he was so thrilled about what God was doing. And he didn't get the full picture, right? He didn't even see just the, the full magnitude of what God was going to do. He hasn't been able to speak for over nine months, and the first words out of his mouth are this proclamation of joy. Can you imagine, like, imagine what it was like to grow up with their stories, to, to grow up with uh, hearing about God's miracles in Egypt, God's presence in the temple, God sending strong leaders to deliver his people, God actually moving, but then 400 years, nothing. And so Zechariah, he is thrilled. He's so excited. We see him react like this because Israel's in a desperate situation. Israel is in a desperate situation, and Zechariah sees the desperation. Now, the reason I talk about his reaction is because his reaction should actually challenge us. His reaction should be challenging for us because we actually see the full picture. We're, we're on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This fulfilled promise. We actually get to see the, the even more amazing thing that God has done. But we don't react like he, he reacts. We don't have the joy welling up in our hearts and just waiting to spill out of us like he does. And I think sometimes maybe that's because we don't realize how desperate our situation is apart from a savior. 
You see, but Zechariah, he sees the desperation. In the midst of it, he starts, he starts prophesying. He starts proclaiming about how the light has finally come. So the third question is, do you see what God is doing? Verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. So he's talking to his son. He's talking to John. You, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So, Zechariah realized in this moment, he realized the significance that John played in the prophecy of the Messiah, in the coming of the Messiah. And so, as he's talking to his son, or he's talking about his son, what's happening is like, it's this excited thing that's going on because he's like, you're the prophet. You're the one who's coming to prepare the way. It's you. And he's like saying, yippee, the king of Israel is here. It's like, it's like he's already arrived. And so John's there. He's there to get Israel ready for this new king. Um, that actually, for what it's worth, that makes him a threat. Israel having a king is actually very dangerous for other kings, um, especially Herod, right? And we read about how Herod then, uh, he, he, he had all the, the baby boys under two, year old, two years old killed because they were a threat to his, uh, his rule over the, Jew, the, the Jewish people. Herod, he wasn't concerned about a savior who would take away sins. He was concerned about a king who was going to come and take his power away, right? This was what was going on. Like Mary and Joseph actually had to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod because of what he was doing, because all of these proclamations were happening that the actual king of Israel has come. 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of sins. Something happens here where Zechariah stumbles onto a bit of a, a, a long view of what God was doing. Now, I don't think actually in this moment when Zechariah says these words that he understands that God is now somehow Savior or that the, the, the Messiah is now somehow Savior of the world. Um, but... You have to understand the Spirit of God is speaking through him. And whenever God speaks through somebody, the person speaking may not actually understand the full magnitude of what God is actually saying. And so when God is speaking here, what he's talking about is he's talking about this bigger picture. This bigger picture that's happening. That we actually get forgiveness, uh, that, that all nations will be forgiven of their sins. But when Zechariah is speaking, what he sees forgiveness of sin as a reference to is, is the reason that they're actually under Roman rule. When their sins need to be forgiven because they are captive to, to enemies, right? And this is, this is the cycle that Israel goes through. So, so in, the, in the book of Judges, we see it most clearly that there's this cycle of uh, Israel is doing well, they have a leader who's over them, and then they start to, to go their own way. They do what is right in their own eyes, and they fall away from God, and then God delivers them over to the hands of their enemies, and then they cry out to God, and then they come back up, and they're, they're in a good place with God again, and they're, they're in a better, but then they do what is right in their own eyes, and they go back down, and then, uh, and then God delivers them to the hand of their enemies, and then they cry out to God. God sends somebody to save them, and they pulls them out. Like, this is an, a, an ongoing cycle that's not just standing in the book of Judges. It's throughout the whole history of Israel. This is the regular pattern for them, but now they're waiting for this final pattern, this final thing to actually finish up. Here's the crazy thing, is that what we're actually waiting for is something much bigger than that. 
We're, we're waiting for a, a final pattern of ultimate forgiveness of sin. We're waiting to be restored forever in a relationship with God. Like these are the dual realities that God is talking about in this passage. There's the reality of like what God's going to do for Israel, but there's also the reality of what he's going to do for the whole world. So then Zechariah, he quotes a psalm in this next part, uh, verse 78. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. There's, there's language all throughout this that, that is actually traced to a particular psalm, 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this, this, all of what Zechariah is saying is actually laced with scripture, but this connects actually really to, to a specific psalm. So uh, Psalm 107 Verses 10 through 14. I want to I take a look at this because this is a really powerful passage of what God can do for his people. And the reason this is important is because it's, it's all based on that pattern that we were talking about. So um, it starts with some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. So the, notice the in language. There's a move inwards. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. So there, uh, this whole passage has inward and outward language, and it emphasizes what's in the middle. So the emphasis on, is on, so he bowed down their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. The emphasis is on the waiting space. The emphasis that this passage places is on the place that's difficult, the place that's hard, the place that they're having to sit in and wait for God to move because they rebelled against the words of God. That's where the emphasis lies. But there's a move outward too, right? So then they cried to the Lord before they rebelled against him, but then then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. They sat in, but he brought them out of darkness and of the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. This is what Zechariah is referencing when he's talking about this passage, when he says this thing. And so he actually, he, he starts this quote of this psalm with the way, uh, the way that the psalm ends. So uh, I want to go back to verse 78. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God. In the New Testament, when we see the word mercy, it's actually a reference to the Hebrew word hesed. So the word mercy is a reference to the Hebrew word hesed, which is all about the, the pursuing, never failing, never ending love of God, the, the unconditional love of God that always comes after us, always takes care of us. And so In Psalm 107, when it says, let them thank the Lord, this is the way that psalm ends. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his hesed, his always pursuing, never failing, always going after unconditional love for his wondrous works to the children of men. This is what Zechariah is talking about. He's saying God's mercy, God's love for his people, his unconditional love, it is showing itself to be true in this situation. And he missed the full meaning, right? He didn't get the whole picture because the whole picture is that God is actually still in the business of pulling people out of the dark and bringing them into the light. This is why Jesus is called the light of the world, the one who has come to reveal to us not just our sins, but has come to actually give us salvation from those sins. Jesus comes to shed light into the dark. And sometimes this 
like this doesn't always go well for us, right? He shows us things about ourselves that we're not always happy to see, but he shows it to us and then he offers us a way to be pulled out, a way to be pulled out. The reality is we are sitting in a land, in a world that is overshadowed by darkness, by death. So you can look at the world around you and you can look at the reality of addiction that exists in our world today. You can look at the reality of broken relationships, broken marriages. You can look at the reality of prideful people who uh, use their power to exploit others. Then you could even look inside yourself and look at how maybe you have that same kind of pride inside of you. How maybe sometimes you choose to do things that you don't love to do, that you know are direct rebellion against God, but you choose to do them anyway. So you can look at these realities of the world around you and you can say, yes, we sit in a land overshadowed by darkness and by death. How many funerals have you gone to this year? How many times have you seen the reality of death? Because all it takes is just one for you to go, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But the promise is, the actual full magnitude of what Jesus was coming for and what John would proclaim is that there is a Savior who is coming to take away the sins of the world. There is a Savior who is coming to pull people, not just from one nation out of darkness, but people from all tribes, tongues, and nations out of their darkness. This is the announcement that Zechariah is making here at this point. And even though he doesn't see the full picture, this is what he's proclaiming. Verse 80 says this. The child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John would go. John would go out into the wilderness. Uh, he would uh, have a ministry out there. He would begin discipling people. There would be people who would follow him. Uh, but his whole point in those people and having those disciples, his whole point is just to prepare them for somebody who is going to come after them. He would baptize a lot of people uh, for repentance. And he would, he would prepare them. But it was all for the day when Jesus showed up so that he could say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, now go follow him. And then he fades into the background. That was his whole purpose for existence, was to point to Jesus, to say he's finally here. And so when John was born, Zechariah was able to look at his son, this prophet who had come and say, look, the light has finally come. So what? So what? Question this morning, are you still waiting in the dark? So John, like the one, the the Elijah, the promised Elijah, he actually arrived. He actually showed up. And then after that, you know what happens? Jesus comes and he dies for the sins of many and rises from the dead. And the next year, the Jewish people sent around their Passover table and leave an empty chair for Elijah, leave an open door for Elijah, still waiting in the dark, still saying that he hasn't come. The most amazing thing in all of history has just taken place. Jesus died and he raised from death. And years and years, all the way up to today, 
Jewish people sit around their tables at Passover and they say, we're still waiting for the Messiah. We're still waiting for him to come. The gospel is about what Jesus came to do to bring light into the dark, to give life to people who were shackled in a land of the shadow of death, to bring worship that is life and life-giving. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you're still waiting to see your Savior move and act, I have a question for you. Do you hear, do you know, do you see what God is doing? What God has accomplished in Jesus? Because if you do, then why? Why are you still sitting in the dark? Why are you still waiting? Because you've witnessed, you've heard, and yet you still don't believe. You celebrate Christmas every year. It, like his name is in the name of the holiday, right? Christ. You celebrate it every year. You go through your traditions. You buy your gifts. You set up your tree. You do all of these things, but you still miss the point. The light of the world has come. He's come and he offers life to any who would follow after him. So stop sitting in the dark. Choose to follow him. The light has come. My second, so what is this? Church, get pumped. (laughs) We do not serve a dusty and out-of-date shell of a religion. We don't go through meaningless traditions, but we actually have a Savior who has come and who has made his presence available to anybody who would place their trust in him. Like that's the amazing thing is when we place our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, to take up residence with us, that God could actually be with us. This is the most amazing news in all of history, this promise that we have been given. And Zechariah, he didn't even see that full magnitude, right? He was more pumped, but we should be way more pumped than he was. We have life given to our souls. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a relationship with the living God. The blessings that we receive in Jesus, they exceed every expectation that we might have. So get excited. Tell somebody else about it. Worship him even more. Talk about him around your dinner tables. Build the anticipation in your spheres of influence. Do whatever you can to get your heart in a place of joy and the reality that Jesus, the light of the world, has come. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I pray for our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you would put our hearts in a place where, Lord, they would just well up with joy and wonder at what you've done. Lord, that you would show us the realities of who you are. Lord, that you would reveal to us the truth that that we are not sitting in the dark. Lord, but the light has come. Lord, for any person in this room who does not believe in you, who has not placed their trust in you, Lord, I ask that you would, by your spirit, Lord, show them, give them life, bring them to you. Lord, that they might know what it is to have their sins forgiven, what it is to have the presence of God live inside of them. Lord, we're so amazed and overwhelmed and thankful for the ways that you work. 
And Lord, we ask this morning that you would continue, your name would continue to be lifted up, that we would continue to praise you all the more. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.